listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, Stonegate, grab your Bible and turn to James chapter 2. And as you're turning to James chapter 2, I want to give a quick shout out to all the kids who are watching uh, services um, online there in your living room. We had several families send us pictures last week of their kids just engaging with the online services. Uh, my favorite picture came from a mom who sent a picture of her newborn baby asleep on her lap with uh, the sermon playing in the background. And that just affirmed what I've always known about my preaching, uh, that I have this unique ability when I'm preaching to put people to sleep. Uh, unique ability right there seen in a picture. Uh, but hey, you can ask Eutychus, even Paul had that problem. Uh, so I think I'm in good company. Uh, so kids, I wanna welcome you. I hope you're enjoying this service in your pajamas, in your living room this morning. So today we're back in the book of James and I wanna start with what should be by now a familiar, uh, a familiar phrase, uh, faith works. Kids, if you want, you can look at your parents and say that phrase to them, faith works. Works. That phrase wasn't just the main point of the passage last week. It's really the main point of the entire letter of James. Faith works. Now, to be clear, James obviously believes, along with the rest of the Bible, that faith alone saves. But James also knows, along with the rest of the Bible, that the faith that saves is never alone. Faith works. Faith always works. Faith works, that the change wrought by Jesus deep in our heart works out through our hands. And again, just to be clear, works don't rescue. Only faith alone in Jesus alone rescues us from our sin. But works reveal that they show us whether or not saving faith is in us. Faith works. And this is the, the theme that our good pastor James is pressing down in this entire letter. Uh, but there's a reason why the letter is more than two words. Uh, there's a reason why it's a 108 verses, five chapters long. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, each chapter is showing the various ways that faith works. So every passage is just showing uh, more texture and adding more color as to how faith works. Uh, the, the letter shows us that faith works in suffering, uh, that faith works in temptation, that faith works against worldliness, that faith works for wisdom, that faith works in our wealth, faith works in patience, faith works in prayer, that faith works in the entire letter, every part, every passage is adding that texture, adding that color to the picture of how faith works. So now when we come to the first part of James chapter two, James adds another layer of texture. Faith works. Well, how does faith work, James? And this is James's big point in the first half of James chapter two. James's big idea is this. Faith walks toward neighbors with love. This is how faith works. Faith walks toward neighbors with love. Now, that big idea, faith walks toward neighbors with love, is found down in verse 8. You can read it along with me. James says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. That's the big idea of the passage. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, and here it is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, we first just need to ask, what is the royal law? That's a unique way to describe the law. And that word royal comes from the same root word as kingdom. Uh, so maybe you could think of it as God's kingdom law. 
Or you could think of it this way. The, the royal law is all that God commands and teaches those who belong to Jesus. That's the royal law. And James is saying, if, if you want to take everything that God commands and you want to bring it down into one simple idea, here's the simple idea. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the royal law. Now, in a lot of ways, James is just borrowing from Jesus. Uh, in the Old Testament, there were 613 laws. And at one point, someone came to Jesus and asked him, what, what are the weighty parts of the law? What's the most important parts of the law? And Jesus boils down those 613 commandments down into two. Jesus said, here are the two greatest commandments. The first is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is, this is the biggest and best, most important commandment. And that's the vertical dimension. That's, that's how we're relating to God. That's that Godward dimension. But then secondly, Jesus says, here's the second most important. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the horizontal or people-oriented dimension of the greatest commandment. And James is just picking up on that horizontal dimension and he's looking at his church and saying, now church, this is, this is how faith works. Faith works like this. Faith walks toward neighbors with love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's just take that in a few parts. Love. The most important word in the Bible is undoubtedly the word God. But that word love comes in a solid second place in the scriptures. It's used over 800 times. So, so what does that word love mean according to the scriptures? Uh, years ago, I heard a guy named Paul Tripp define love like this, and it's always stuck with me. He, he said this, love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. So, so love is willing self-sacrifice. It's giving ourselves for another, spending ourselves, impoverishing ourselves for the good of another without demanding reciprocation, something in return from that person or that that person is deserving. If you wanna see the greatest model of love, just linger over the life of Jesus. He's the greatest model of love. So Jesus says to, to love, the second greatest commandment, Love your neighbor as yourself. So, so love. And then he says, your neighbor. Now in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, Jesus affirms again those two greatest commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. But then he was asked a follow-up question. Well, Jesus, who is my neighbor? What do you mean by that word neighbor? When you say love your neighbor, who is my neighbor? And he responded, if you remember in Luke 10, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, why did Jesus respond with this particular story, this, this particular parable? Well, Jesus knows that, that we tend to draw lines with our love. I'll love these people, but not those people. We have a way of shrinking down our love to, to, to just this little small group of people. We have a way of putting limits on our love. And, and Jesus knows this. And the point of the parable is for Jesus to be able to say that there should be no limits on our love. That there should be no limits to, to who we love. The parable pushes us to erase every line that our heart sort of innately wants to draw. I'll love these people, but not those people. The parable is, is pushing us to get the eraser out and to wipe away those lines. Jesus' point in that parable is to define who our neighbor is. And here's how Jesus defines it. Your neighbors are all of those providentially put in your path. 
Every single person providentially put in your path, that's your neighbor. So when Jesus connects the word love to to your neighbor, Jesus is saying, I want you to love every single person, all the people I put in, in your path, people of all races, people of all classes, those of all beliefs, those of all sort of educational achievements, those of all political parties. Jesus gets real right there, doesn't he? Yeah, all, even those of all political parties. There, his point is that there should be no limits to our love. He's calling us to erase the lines that our heart wants to draw as to who it is that we're going to love. That, that's the point of the parable. So, so he says, love your neighbor, and then he attaches these last two words to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we need to chat about those last two words, as yourself, for a moment. Primarily because we live in a culture that is self-esteem crazy. We live in a culture that takes this passage and then uses it to say, to love others, we first have to love ourselves. Now, I just want to be clear, that is not what Jesus is saying or teaching in this passage. This this passage isn't teaching us to love ourselves. This passage assumes it. it. It assumes it. Jesus doesn't command us to love ourselves because Jesus knows we're already really good at that. He knows we already do love ourselves. The human problem, according to the scriptures, is not one of self-hate. The human problem is one of self-love. When self-love gets its way, it often comes out in what we might call self-confidence or a high self-esteem. When self-love doesn't get its way, it often comes out in self-loathing or what we might call a low self-esteem. But beneath both of those two reactions, buried deep down in the heart is self-love. Okay, so with that said, what does Jesus mean here when he says, love your neighbor as yourself? What is, what is Jesus asking us to do? Well, I think it's actually pretty simple. He's just inviting us to look at all the ways that we love ourselves, all the ways that we prioritize ourselves, fight for our rights, make sure, demand that, that we're heard, make sure all of our needs are met, just to make sure we have 27,000 rolls of toilet paper stocked up in our house. Right? Jesus is just saying, look at all the ways that you love yourself. Look at all of those ways and then love your neighbor like that. That's the point Jesus is making. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at all the ways that you love yourself, prioritize yourself and love your neighbor like that. I love how one pastor said it. He said, Jesus is saying, I want you to meet the needs of others with all the energy, delight, creativity, and consistency with which you meet your own. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the primary point of the passage. James is saying faith works. And here's the way faith works. Faith walks toward neighbors with love. And James tells us here in verse eight, if your faith is doing that, if you're walking toward neighbors with love, then you're doing well. Your faith is working. It's doing the things in you that it should be doing. Faith that's in you is coming out of you in the right and appropriate ways. That's the point of the passage. Now we get to the problem of the passage. And the problem of the passage, the problem that James introduces to us in James chapter two is the problem of partiality the problem of partiality. And you see this in verse two. James says, my brothers, show no partiality 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James says, show no partiality. That's a command. It's one of 59 commands in James. It's not a suggestion. James is saying, my brothers, don't do this. Don't show partiality. James is saying that faith does not work with favoritism. Those two things do not go together. This is not the way that faith should work. Show no partiality. Uh, But then he also helps us kind of get a sense of like what partiality is. Uh, In in some ways, this just shows the creativity of the New Testament church. This was probably a phrase that James and the New Testament church coined. It, It combines two different words. It combines the words to receive with the word face. So to receive and faith and face. So what does partiality mean? It means to determine who you're going to receive based on their face, based on their external appearances, based on the the sort of shallow ways that we judge the world. That's what partiality is. And James is saying, do not show partiality. And that word partiality in, in this verse is also plural. In other words, it's, there's not just one way that partiality has a way of playing out. It plays out in hundreds of different ways in the world. It's plural. James gives one example of how partiality plays out. In verses two through four, James says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down at my feet. It's a picture of partiality playing itself out. This is one of the many ways that partiality can can play itself out. Favoritism oftentimes works over and around wealth. So here's the example. Uh, It's probably a a Sunday morning gathering for this church. And a a, a person dressed in shiny clothes comes in. Uh, That's one person. And then another person comes in and he doesn't have the the shiny clothes. He's got the shabby clothes. And now people begin to, to, to allow partiality to play out. They're receiving people based on face, based on the external appearances. So the shiny man gets the best seat. Now, later on, James goes on to say, and and this makes no sense because the shiny people, those are the people that are exploiting you. But James is saying, you're so desperate for some of their shine to rub off on you that you're favoring them. So the shiny person comes in, he gets the best seat. While the shabby person, the shabby man, gets the floor. That's an example of partiality that James uses here. It's an example of partiality playing out in the life of a church. So think about how faith should work. Faith walks toward neighbors with love. This is what faith does. This is faith working. But this is why partiality is a problem. It throws a wrench into the gears of faith. Where faith walks towards, uh, toward neighbors with love, favoritism also works. And here's how favoritism works. Favoritism walks toward likable neighbors with love. That's favoritism playing out. It walks toward likable neighbors with love. So where faith removes the limits of our love, where faith erases the line of our love, it moves us toward all of our neighbors with the heart of God. Uh, partiality redraws the lines. Partiality says, I'll love my neighbor as long as you mean by that word neighbor, uh, those neighbors that I like. 
I am all for loving those neighbors. Partiality redefines the word neighbor. It distorts the word neighbor. Neighbor goes from all of those providentially put in our path to, this is what partiality or favoritism does to that word. It changes that word neighbor to mean all of those providentially put in my path that can pay me back. That's that's how favoritism redefines the word neighbor. Partiality is all about loving those who love you, giving to those who can give back to you, sacrificing for those who you deem deserving and worthy of sacrifice. And to this, James says, anytime you're doing this, drawing those sorts of distinctions, James says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, before you try to apply this text to others, let me give you a second to take a long, lingering look at yourself. Uh, Several years ago, uh, Laura and I got a foster placement. And for the first month of that placement, this precious uh, little 18-month-old child um, didn't want a thing to do with me. So if I brought a spoonful of peanut butter over, that spoon is about to be thrown at me, at a wall, at something. Uh, But if Laura brought that same spoon of peanut butter over, heaven would just miraculously come down to earth. I mean, it was amazing. And about two weeks into that, I remembered thinking, um, you know what? If you don't like me, I just won't like you. I mean, we can both play this game. If you don't like me, I just won't like you. If you don't reciprocate my love, then you're not going to be worthy of my love. Now, most of the time, in most of our heart, our hearts, those sort of brash thoughts lurk in the hidden places. They lurk deep down in the recesses of our heart where, where those thoughts are hard to detect. But in this moment, for me, God was graciously at work using this little moment with, a, with an 18-month-old to bring those brash thoughts out of hiding, which then led me to ask, I, I wonder how often in adult relationships do those same sort of brash thoughts just come out in much more sophisticated ways that are hard for me to see. And so I just started to look. I just started to look for those, for, for those lingering, lurking, brash thoughts to just come up and out of my hearts with people in sophisticated ways. And do you know where I found partiality hiding? Absolutely everywhere. E- everywhere. But here is the problem with partiality. Partiality is hard to see because partiality dresses in camouflage. Partiality dresses um, in all the clothes that love normally wears. And James is, is saying here, I don't care what partiality looks like, what it's dressed up in, favoritism. Partiality, favoritism is a failure to love. The love Jesus created, favoritism counterfeits. That's partiality. It's a a counterfeit love. Just think about what you see as love around you and what so often passes as love is really just partiality. It's really just favoritism. Partiality is is the counterfeit way the world loves others. And, And this is how that works out. Love is dished out to those deemed to deserve it. 
But the losers, on the other hand, those people are not going to get any of my love. It's actually interesting. Years ago, I read an article that was written that had empirical data to show that more attractive people, like the more attractive you are, and based on whatever standard the world is using today for that, but the more attractive you are, the more likely it is that you're going to get your way. And goodness, in so many ways, that just described the problem of my life, why I don't get my way so often. Uh, But that is counterfeit love. That is a version of love that goes like this. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. I'll love you as long as you love me in return. If you have something to offer me, then I'll find something to offer you. And that whole version of love is based on reciprocation. It's not, it's not the Bible's version of love. And James is saying, don't let partiality pass as love. It's not love. It's not. So I, I want to give you a moment to look at your life. Here's how the Bible thinks about love. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not demand reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Take a look at your life. Think, think about the way that you love. Think about what you call love. Is it love or is it partiality wearing love's dress? That, that's the question James is confronting us with. The, the main point James is making is that faith walks toward neighbors with love. L- love your neighbor as yourself, James says. Now, th- this actually fits right into the slot of the initiative that we started last week called Love Thy Neighbor. We're asking everyone in our church family to pray by name. And as you're praying by name for your neighbor, uh, you're discovering the, the needs that your neighbor has. So pray by name. And then we're asking everyone in our church family to find needs to meet. Pray by name and then meet a need. So ask yourself, is faith walking to your neighbors with love? Is that happening in your life? Or is favoritism walking to our likable neighbors with love? Is faith working or favoritism working? Uh, Last night, I was talking to Laura about love thy neighbor and just how my heart innately uh, does the calculation like this when I think about love my neighbor. I'm gonna love that one, that one, that one. Not that one, but that one, that one, that one, but not that one. My heart innately does that. And James is inviting us to look long enough at our hearts to see that in us, to see where we're putting limits on the love of God, to see where we're drawing lines and making distinctions with people and saying, I'll love those people, but not those people. James is inviting us to take a good, long, lingering look at our hearts here. Now, why is partiality a problem? James finishes this passage by giving us three reasons for partiality being a problem. Why is it a problem? Well, here's one reason that James gives us. He says that partiality distorts the picture. Partiality distorts the picture. The grace of God is not just a doctrine to be believed. The grace of God is also a culture to be seen and felt and experienced. Uh, In Acts chapter 11, there's this interesting moment where Barnabas shows up at the church in Antioch. And here's what the scriptures say. It says that Barnabas, he saw the grace of God. 
that the grace of God was not just something that you believe, but Barnabas could see the grace of God at work around him in this church. So if the gospel of grace is something to be seen, if it's a, if it's a picture that can be seen and admired and just inspiring awe in our heart, if, if that's true, well, what does the picture look like? Well, James paints the picture in verse five. Here's what grace looks like, verse five. James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? There is a picture of the good news of Jesus. Listen, my beloved brothers, he says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith heirs of the kingdom, which God has promised to those who love him. Think third grade, playground, uh, picking teams. Get that mental picture in your mind. Now, now think about who is picked first. Uh, well, the people picked first are the big people, the powerful people, the athletic people, uh, the, the people that, that are good. That, that's who's picked first. And, and James is saying that may be true on a playground, but it is not true with God. That's not the way God works. The Bible shows us over and over and over again that the grace of God flows downhill into the leftovers and the have-nots. The grace of God flows downhill. That word poor is used in at least two ways in the Bible. Uh, and you see both of these two ways uh, in Matthew and Luke. Uh, they, they show a good representation of the two ways that word poor is used. Matthew says this in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. That's one way ways that the word poor is used. And he's saying blessed are those who, who know they don't deserve to be chosen by God. But blessed are those people. Blessed are those who, who know they bring nothing to God but their sin and their need. Blessed are those people. Happy are those people. Favored are those people. Uh, but then Luke in the Beatitudes that as he kind of works them out, uh, Luke says it this way. Blessed are the poor. And for Luke, there is no in spirit. Now, why is that? Well, I think it's important to know that, that the Bible does not present God as being against categorically people who have money and for those categor categorically, for, you know, for those who don't have money. That's not the way the Bible presents God. That, that's not it. The Bible is more nuanced than that. The Bible shows that there is the righteous rich and the unrighteous rich, just like there's the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. But at the same time, the Bible does offer plenty of warnings to the wealthy. And the Bible does that because the Bible knows, God knows that wealth often seduces us into self-reliance, that there is danger embedded into wealth. The more wealth most often means more difficulty in seeing our poverty before God. The more we have, the more difficult it is to see that we really don't have before God. The more wealth we have, the more likely it is that, that deep down in the places where it matters most, we'll look up at God and think, God, you're really pretty lucky that I'm playing on your team. The more we have, the more we innately begin to think like that. But on the other hand, material poverty often makes our spiritual poverty easier to see. 
Material poverty has a way of ripping self-reliance from our hands, forcing us to feel our need before God. And for all those who feel their need before Jesus and then bring that need to Jesus, Jesus says, I'll take them. I I want them. That's the people I want on my team. Everyone who is in need and knows they're in need and brings that need to me, that's the person I want. The grace of God flows downhill into neediness, desperation, weakness. God takes those who know they have nothing and then he gives them everything, it says here in James. He makes them rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. That's the picture of the good news of Jesus. Years ago, I heard a pastor tell the story of a couple in his church that were adopting. And everything was ready. They were just really waiting on the child to be born. And that child was going to come into their home. And in the middle of the waiting, they got that chilling phone call that no adoptive parent wants. They got the phone call that let them know that the baby they were waiting on was born. And he was born with serious health problems. There were, there were problems that, that they were going to encounter in adopting this little boy. And they had that night to think it over. Are we going to adopt this baby? Are we not? They had, they had one night to, to figure that question out. And that night, the lady had a dream. And in that dream, it, it, there was a huge stadium. And the stadium was full of people. And in the middle of that stadium... Uh, they would hold up these beautiful kids and someone in that stadium would then pop up, stand up, get out of their seats and shout, I want that one. And then they would hold up another beautiful kid and another person would pop up out of the crowd and say, I want that one. And another beautiful kid would, would be held up and another one would say, I want that one. But then all of a sudden, they held up an unlovely baby, a baby with all sorts of problems, There was very little beautiful about this baby. And this shouting crowd of prospective parents all of a sudden grew silent. No one wanted this baby. And then it was as if the camera zoomed in onto the face of this little baby and the lady realized that was her. She she was the unlovely baby that all of these prospective parents, all of them didn't want. She was the unlovely baby being held up in the middle of this stadium and everyone was silent. And then the camera zoomed out and that's when Jesus stood up and he looked at that unlovely baby and said, she's mine. That's the one I want. If you're in Christ, that's your story. That is is the picture of the good news of Jesus. But think about what partiality does to that picture. Partiality distorts that picture. Partiality says God rejects those with problems. He doesn't doesn't receive those with problems. He He just receives those who are perfect. That's the only ones that that he receives. And James is saying here, no, that's not true. He he wants the poor. He wants the needy. He wants the desperate. Just read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and watch who Jesus drifts toward in the Gospels. It's not toward the strong. It's toward the weak. It's not toward the somebodies. It's toward the nobodies. Jesus welcomes all 
all of those who are humble enough to bring their weakness, to bring their nobodiness to, to him. He, he welcomes all of them. He says, I, I want to make you mine. And I want to take you, a nobody, and I'm going to make you an eternal somebody. You're going to be rich in faith. You're going to be an heir of the kingdom. That's the good news of Jesus. And it's that picture that partiality distorts. So, so partiality is wrong because partiality distorts the picture. But James goes on. He shows us that partiality is also sin. Partiality is sin. Uh, Jerry Bridges years ago wrote a book called Respectable Sins. And I love the premise of the book. He's looking at Christians and then he's looking at culture and he's just trying to figure out where has culture so sort of seeped into Christians uh, that they can't even see particular sins. Uh, where have uh, sins that God would look at and say, no, these are, these are wrong. Where, where have we just sort of accepted those sins and allowed those particular sins to be respectable? Wh what are those sins that are so ingrained in how the world operates and how we operate that we can't even see them? Now, he didn't write a, a chapter on partiality, but Jerry Bridges could have written it. Because partiality is an acceptable sin in our culture. It's a respectable sin in our culture. And so James brings out the mirror of the word. And he brings out the mirror of the word not to harm us, but to help us. And in verse 9, James says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, James then anticipates an objection. And here's the objection that he anticipates. He, he anticipates someone looking back at him and saying, uh, but seriously, of, like of all the sins, James, of all the sins, you're, you're going you're gonna to focus on partiality? Like partiality is really that big of a problem? That's, that's what he's anticipating here. So he goes on in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, this is James's point here. His point is, um, Christians, those who belong to Jesus, you can't pick and choose the laws that you like and the laws that you're going to leave behind. You, you can't do that. You can't pick and choose that, that way. Now, why can we not pick and choose what laws we like and what laws we're just going to kind of leave behind? Well, it's because the whole law reflects the whole heart of God. The entirety of the law is saying something and, and revealing and showing and reflecting the whole heart of God. The law, also, every command, everything that Jesus teaches us, it's of one piece. This is James' point. It's of one piece. Picture it like a window. Picture the law like a window. Now, picture you throwing a ball at the window of the law, and as you throw the ball at the window, it crashes through the bottom right corner of the law and breaks the window. Now, then imagine you looking at the person who owns the window and you looking back and saying, but, but listen, it's just the bottom right corner of the window. What's the problem? It's just that one little part that's broken. The problem is that's not how windows work. When you break a small part of a window, you have officially broken the whole window. Right? This is James's point. 
If the bottom corner of the window of God's law is broken, the whole window is broken. That's the point James is making here. So, So James is saying, when love your neighbor as yourself turns to show partiality to the neighbors you like, it's a failure of love. It's a failure of love. It's an offense to God. It's, it's sin, James says. But then James goes one more step. He says partiality isn't just a sin. Partiality, like all sins, partiality damns. Look at verse 12. James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James is looking forward into the future. He's having us imagine that moment where we stand before the risen Jesus, who is also our judge. And James says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. James is just making his big overarching point. Faith works. And if you look at your life and you see no evidence of faith walking toward your neighbor with love, James is warning us here, that means there is no faith. He's saying faith works. And really James is just borrowing from Jesus. In Matthew chapter five, verse seven, Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. They shall receive mercy. Now, James is just flipping what Jesus says in a positive way. James is stating in a negative way. James is saying this, no mercy shown means there's no saving mercy received. That's James's point. Now, again, James is not saying that works of mercy rescue. That's not James's point. He's saying that works of mercy, they they reveal is genuine faith in us or not. James is saying, if if you look at your life and there are no works of mercy, James is saying right now in this moment where you are in your living room, the answer is, well, if you can't find any works of mercy in your life, then receive Jesus's work of mercy for you. That's James's point here. You need to receive Jesus's work of mercy, his, his saving mercy. The mercy awaiting all of those who will bring their need to Jesus with the empty hands of faith. This is why James ends with these four words in verse 13. James ends by saying this, mercy triumphs over judgment. James is pointing us to Jesus. James is pointing us to the good news of the gospel, to the loving mercy of God. Think about the mercy of God for a moment. Rather than plunging the world into hell in response to our sin, God plunged his beloved son into hell. That's the mercy of God, the loving mercy of God, the willing self-sacrifice of God for our good. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. To help us in our poverty, Jesus impoverished himself. 
He took on human flesh. He lived in our place. And in this astonishing act of mercy, he he died in our place. All the judgment we deserved wrecked Jesus, ruined Jesus. He suffered so that you and I could be saved and friends. Receiving the love of God, this loving mercy of God, this shocking mercy of God, it gets us moving. It gets us moving. It gets us walking toward our neighbors with love. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment there where you are to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful this morning and to wipe away the things that wouldn't be helpful. I want to just ask on all of our behalf, for the Spirit of God to to come in right now in a way that would be felt and and for the Spirit of God right now to even, even now be opening our eyes to the hidden places of our heart. And maybe you're listening today and You have never received the mercy of God. You've never received that. James is inviting you right now into the story of the gospel. Right now, he's inviting you in. He's inviting you to see your need. He's inviting you to to bring your need to Jesus, to come to Jesus with the empty hands of faith, to turn from your sin and to throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to hold up your life before God and to say, God, I am trusting that I will be made right with you based on Jesus's perfect record of righteousness given to me. And to all who will do that this morning, Jesus says, I'll take them to all those who will bring their need, humble enough to bring their weakness to Jesus. Jesus says, yes, I want them. Yes to them. Welcome into my kingdom. And for those who have received the mercy of God, James is looking at us, the church, and he's saying, let's extend that mercy. Let's give that mercy away. So maybe now you could be thinking about love thy neighbor. What are the ways that you're going to be moving toward your neighbor? How is faith going to walk toward your neighbors with love? What steps do you need to take to pray for your neighbors, to begin to discover needs in their life? What steps do you need to take to proactively meet those needs of your neighbor? Father, would you come now and visit us in a way that would show us these things? Father, would you let the word do its work in our life today to make us more like your beloved son, Jesus, to make us a more accurate reflection of his self-sacrificing love. Father, would you do that? And it's in your good name we pray, amen.